The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. And with that, uh, as I said, we'll be in Revelation chapter 10. Um, Revelation. I, I just never cease to be amazed at, as I talk to Christians, not from this church anymore, but others, when they find out you're teaching in Revelation, the, just the different reactions you get. Whoa, I can't believe it. Or, ooh, why are you doing that? Or, ooh, how scary. Or, ooh, how confusing. And uh, I just listen. But the reason we're studying the book of Revelation is because it's part of the New Testament. It is part of the Scriptures that the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit says that all Scriptures inspired by God and profitable. Profitable. Good for us to help us grow. So that's why we're studying it. It's God's Word just as much as Romans and Genesis is. Uh, and also, it's actually very exciting. I like the attitude of my four kids. They think Revelation is cool. That should be the reaction of every Christian. What are you, what are you preaching through Revelation? Cool! That's been my experience. It is cool. It's got all kinds of neat, unique, different, weird, wow, amazing, mind-boggling stuff. And today's going to be no exception as we see it. There's a practical reason we should be studying Revelation given by God Himself. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, just by way of reminder. Blessed is He. God wants to bless His people. Do you want to be blessed? I do. Man, I'll take every blessing I can get. Well, one way to be blessed. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, the book of Revelation, and heed or obey the things which are written in it. So that's another reason, practically speaking, why we're studying Revelation. I want our church to be blessed. I want you to be blessed. I want to be blessed. So we study this together. We ask the Spirit of God uh, to help us understand it, to assimilate it, to apply it to our life, to be obedient. There are things in Revelation that require obedience, uh, and we've been seeing that along the way. So just a great thrill and great opportunity, actually kind of a rare opportunity to study the book of Revelation, going about a chapter at a time. So before I get to chapter 10 and bring us up to speed, uh, let's do a little Old Testament survey. If you will, if you have your Bible, you can follow along with me. I want to read just a couple of verses out of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And uh, those Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel are actually called, formally speaking, the major prophets. And then you've got the minor prophets, which are those 12 little books at the very end. The major prophets, the minor prophets. Historically, they're called the minor prophets because they're shorter books, not because they're less important. And then the major prophets have been called major throughout church history because they're the longer books. Um, so let's look at a couple of excerpts from the major prophets because this will lay the foundation for Revelation chapter 10. Very important. I said before we started this study that the Old Testament is referred to or alluded to almost 300 times in Revelation. And if you're not a student of the Old Testament and you just read Revelation cold turkey without knowing your Old Testament, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. Lots and lots of stuff. Like, so today, if you read Revelation 10, not being familiar with the Old Testament, you're going to miss probably the most important component, context, historically speaking, of what God's trying to communicate in Revelation chapter 10. So just want to give us a glimpse and a logical background of what's really going on in Revelation 10. And you can't do that apart from knowing uh, the Old Testament precedent that was set. So I want to start with Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah was a prophet who lived about 700 years before Christ, had a very long ministry. 
unique prophet of God, and before he was called, or as he was being called to be a prophet by God, he was personally called by God and personally commissioned by God to preach on behalf of God to the Jews of his day, 700 years before Christ. And look at his commissioning by God himself. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year of King Isaiah's death, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So he had a heavenly vision. Very similar to what John had. John's book of Revelation, he has a heavenly vision. He, see, he sees a throne in heaven. Very similar. So Isaiah sees a throne lofty and exalted. So he sees a manifestation of some sort of God himself, even though God doesn't have a body. God revealed himself in a vision. Not only that, does he see the throne of God? It says he sees seraphim, verse 2, seraphim. Those are angels. Uh, they're really cool angels. They have six wings. They are real beings. They really do have six wings, apparently. They're guarding the holiness of God. They are before God, around His throne, just like those uh, creatures, those living beings that we saw in the book of Revelation. So many parallels here to the vision of John and Isaiah. And then in verse 6, then one of the seraphim or the uh, angels flew to Isaiah with a burning coal in his hand which he had taken from the altar that was in heaven. Verse 7, and he does something weird. The angel took the burning coal that was in his hand and he touched Isaiah's mouth with it. Ouch. I'm a sissy when it comes to hot things. I burn my tongue on lukewarm hot cocoa and can't eat for three days. I can't even imagine this. This heavenly charcoal burning rock from an angel goes up to Isaiah and touches his mouth with it. What in the world was that all about? Well... It's symbolic of his call to be a prophet. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, lo, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And so it symbolized two things. That God has forgiven you. He's purged away. He's burned away your sin and prepared you and qualified to be a prophet of God. Not perfect, but an obedient servant of God. And also he touched his mouth because a prophet, first and foremost, speaks for God to the people. And a prophet better speak correctly for God and not mess things up. Because Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18 says, if a prophet speaks presumptuously and misrepresents the word of God, he is to be killed with stones, stoning, stoned to death. So it's, it's the highest calling with the highest accountability and the highest responsibility and the highest consequences if you're not a faithful steward. And here God assures Isaiah as he commissions him to be a faithful prophet as God purges the very words that are going to flow from the mouth of Isaiah. And we go on to see the ministry of Isaiah that lasted almost 50 years. Many times on a human level, it would appear that it was not successful because many times Isaiah preached authoritatively on behalf of God and the people did not listen. They didn't respond a lot of times. They were hard-hearted. And so the prophet could get very frustrated with that. Nevertheless, he was called to be faithful to preach on behalf of God. That's the calling of a prophet of God or a teacher of God. You preach faithfully God's truth you know what, regardless of the response of the people. You be faithful in teaching despite how the people respond because you're not to be a man-fear. You are to fear God and God alone. So that's Isaiah and his call. Now go to Jeremiah, the next major prophet, Jeremiah chapter 1. Because Jeremiah also had a long ministry and his was about 500 years before Christ and he was in exile, sometimes as a prisoner. He was abused. Uh, he was beaten up. He was uh, tortured for being a believer, being faithful to God. He spent some time in prison, unjustly so. And he was called the weeping prophet because 
He lived during very sad times in Israel's history, and he was also the weeping prophet because most of what he said was rejected by his people. His people didn't listen. So there's a common theme going on here between these prophets. And so there's also a common theme in how they were appointed and called by God. So in uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God tells uh, Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you before you were even born. Isn't that amazing? God knows everything. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I, I called you. I set you apart to be a prophet of God even while you were in the womb. And then in verse 5 it says, I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. So God gave him his appointment. Uh, God goes on, look at verse 8, chapter 1. Do not be afraid of them. The reason he had to say that is because they were going to reject him, they were going to abuse him, they were going to mock him. Uh, Don't be afraid of your audience that will reject you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand, notice this, and he touched Jeremiah's mouth. There it is again. God is touching, commissioning, anointing, consecrating the mouth out of which the prophet will speak. We're going to see this as a common theme. Uh, So the Lord touched Jeremiah's mouth and said to him, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have a point. Now this next phrase, verse 10, is actually quoted in Revelation chapter 10, or alluded to. God says, See, I have appointed you to this day over the nations and over the kingdoms. It's a universal calling from Jeremiah's perspective. And then finally in Jeremiah 15, uh, more about his calling as a prophet in a graphic illustration. Uh, in Jeremiah 15 at verse 16, uh, Jeremiah is praying to the Lord. And in verse 16 he says this, Thy words, God, your words, he's talking to God, your words were found and I ate them. That's weird. Well, it's not weird if you know the Old Testament because it's actually a Hebrew idiom that was common for prophets. Very graphic illustration. God, I took your word and I ate it. I consumed your word. I digested your word. I took in your word. I made it part of me. I assimilated it. I appropriated it. It dominated my thinking, my conviction, my will, my emotions, my thoughts. That's what it means. To eat something is to have that become a total part of you. The word of God, your words, God, were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and a delight. See, the word of God is a joy to the prophet. The, revela- the fact that they could get direct revelation from God is a privilege and so it's a joy. It's a sweet thing. So this was a sweet thing that, and a sweet rare privilege that Jeremiah had that he could receive direct revelation from God and be a guardian and steward of truth. So that's the calling and commissioning of Jeremiah the prophet. Now let's go to Ezekiel chapter 3, the next book, the next major prophet. And a lot of parallels here with Ezekiel, who lived also around 500 years before Christ during very dark ages of Israel when they were in exile. And God called this man Ezekiel to be a prophet of God. And he had visions of God, chapter 1, verse 1, at the end of verse... So like John the Apostle, he had all these heavenly visions. And some of them were just really, really, really weird. They defy description. You can read that in chapter 1 and chapter 2 in Ezekiel. The things that he saw and these things spinning around and all kinds of mystical spiritual wheels up in heaven and it's beyond really description. Absolutely amazing. But he's a prophet of God and God reveals himself. There's a theophany of God's manifestation uh, to Ezekiel. And Ezekiel struggles with human terminology to describe what he saw to us. And he sees four, so he sees the throne of God. He sees a representation of God up in heaven in his vision. He also sees around the throne of God four living beings. Chapter 1, verse 5, which is what John the Apostle also saw. These four living beings with these four faces. Face of a man, an ox, uh, with wings, with eyes all around. 
What are these? These are angelic supernatural beings, whether they're cherubim or seraphim, guarding the holiness of God up in heaven. That is what Ezekiel saw. Same thing that John saw. As God is revealing this to him, and then, and then God calls Ezekiel to be a prophet. He commissions him. And look at the way he does it. He, God calls him son of man in chapter 2, verse 1. And then look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Ezekiel says, then I looked and behold, or in other words, and then I looked and you won't believe it. It's so hard to describe. A hand was extended to me and lo, a scroll was in it. A scroll was in this hand from heaven. What in the world is that? Verse 10. And when he spread it out before me, the scroll, it was written on the front and the back and written on it were lamentations, mourning and woe. So on this scroll are written the judgments of God to come. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. That's bizarre. Eat this scroll. Eat the word of God. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. Verse 2, So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I'm giving you. Then I ate the scroll and it was sweet as honey to my mouth. Why was it sweet? Because it was the pure... Uh, unmitigated, direct revelation of God. It was supernatural truth. And he was having this great privilege and opportunity to represent God and speak on his behalf. What a joy. That's why it was sweet to his mouth. But And it was the message of God. So Ezekiel is agreeing to take the message of God and preach to the people. And if you go on and read the book of Ezekiel, bad news. Chapter one verse seven, or Chapter 3, verse 7 says this, Go and preach for me. But listen to your audience, verse 7. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. Wow, how frustrating. Have you ever been given a job to do and you try to be faithful, but you know the end result is it's going to be rejection? That almost undermines your motivation to go on, doesn't it? Oh, what's the use? And you throw in the towel? Well, when you're representing God, you don't have the privilege of throwing in the towel. You're just called to be faithful regardless of the results. Someone was telling me about a friend. Oh, I know it was. It was Sam Kim was telling me he has a friend that's a missionary over in the uh, where he was traveling in the east, I can't remember if it was Malaysia or somewhere, um, but the missionary has been there for 10 to 15 years. In the first two years, this was last week, Sam saw him, the first two years of his missionary work, there was zero response positively, not one convert. But he didn't give up. He just continued to be faithful because he knew it was what God wanted him to do. And after years, finally... A convert. After years, finally, fruit that you could see, but there's no guarantee. So many times that's the life of a Christian. Finally, let's look at Daniel chapter 12. The next major prophet there. And here, Daniel, again, same time frame as Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Dark days, called to be a prophet of God. Daniel was a prophet for, man, maybe 60, 70 years. Faithful. And at the end of his prophecy, and by the way, this is like Revelation part 1, Daniel is the Old Testament, what Revelation is to the New Testament, because much of it has to do with the end times and even the tribulation, which we're seeing in Revelation. And at the very end, uh, Daniel has another vision. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 5, it says, Then I, Daniel, looked and behold two others, like these two other angels, two others kind of like Michael. So he has an angelic vision. Two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river, there by the Euphrates River, And one of these angelic creatures said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders that I've just talked about in these 11 chapters? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river 
as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore. He made an oath by God who lives forever. This also happens in Revelation chapter 10. An angel does the same thing. He makes an oath to God regarding the end times and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. That's the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation described in detail in the book of Revelation. This angel makes a, 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 an oath in the presence of Daniel the prophet. Now, with all of that historical context, let's go to Revelation chapter 10 and let's see what follows. We left off, as I said, we did Revelation chapter 9. And just to remind you, uh, Revelation chapter 9 was two trumpet judgments. Two trumpet judgments. Trumpet number 5 and trumpet number 6. So trumpet number 7 hasn't happened yet. Uh, trumpet number 7 is going to happen in Revelation chapter 11. And the trumpet judgments, uh, 5 and 6, were demonic plagues, actually, that are going to hit the earth. One is for five and a half months, and the other one is going to... These demons are going to attack humanity and kill up to two billion people because it's one-third of humanity at the time. Absolutely devastating. And so God is judging the earth. This is the, Remember, the context is, the, is yet future. It is in the future seven-year tribulation. I believe what's going on is around right now we're about midpoint of the tribulation. Now we're about to get in the latter part of the seven-year tribulation. The last three and a half years of the tribulation are the most devastating. And we're going to see that in the rest of the book of Revelation. And that's pretty much where we are right now. Uh, so God is judging humanity with these uh, cataclysmic judgments that come from heaven, that affect the earth. They come from the spiritual realm as well. People are dying. Some people are responding and repenting, but not many. As a matter of fact, the majority that are left and live are rejecting God and they're hardening their hearts. And that's how Revelation chapter 9 ended, verse 20 and 21. And that brings us to chapter 10. So now... So far, we've had the seven seal judgments that happened in the first part of the tribulation. And then in the seventh seal was unveiled seven trumpet judgments. And six of the seven trumpet judgments have been blown. And now we're about to get to the seventh trumpet, which is towards the end of the tribulation. And when that trumpet is blown, the seventh trumpet during the tribulation, uh, which happens in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, God is going to wind up his judgment during that seven-year tribulation and then usher into his kingdom. So we're nearing the finish line right now. But before we get to the finish line, which is totally unprecedented in terms of world history, in terms of the devastation, the universal nature of it, the mind-boggling realities that take place, before the seventh trumpet happens, God takes a break, a little respite or an interlude, and that is chapter 10, verse 1 through 11, and also uh, chapter 11, verse 1 through 14. So we're going to look at a little interlude here in two parts before the seventh trumpet is blown. And by the way, when God has the seventh trumpet blown, inside the seventh trumpet are seven bowls. And the seven bowls are the judgments of God at the very end of the tribulation before Christ's return. So let's go ahead and look at Revelation chapter 10. I divided it into two parts. So this is the interlude or the prelude or the warming up for the seventh trumpet that's about to happen. And I'm going to go ahead and read. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 11. So after the sixth trumpet, here's what happens, uh, starting at verse 1. And John says, And I saw, so he has another vision, another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And the angel had in his hand a little book or a little scroll, which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea, and he placed his left 
foot on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. And the angel whom I was whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound his trumpet, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the scroll which is in the open hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel telling him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And John said, I took the scroll, the little scroll, out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And so what we have here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus Christ commissioned John the Apostle to be a prophet uh, to explain the end of the world and the tribulation. And now unbelievable things have been revealed. We've had nine chapters of stuff that has been given that has been devastating. Much of it, like I said, unprecedented or ever seen before. And now the worst actually is yet to come for uh, the judgment of the world. And so now God is going to take a break. And he's actually has a concern for John. And he's going to recommission John to to reaffirm John, to reestablish him and also for us as readers. Because there's actually a lot of doom and gloom yet to come up until chapter 18. 11 through 18. And it gets worse. There's this crescendo of judgment on God's part, towards a people who grow in their hatred toward God and His people and Jesus. And so it's it's a divine battle. And so John is being recommissioned in this chapter. That's what's going on here before he gets to the seventh trumpet. So I divided the commissioning of John into two parts. The Part one is the presentation of this little scroll, whatever it is. And part two is the assimilation of the little scroll as John agrees to take the word of God of the rest of what's going to happen in the book of Revelation and to be a faithful prophet and apostle and servant on behalf of Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and look at the first, some just some highlights in the verse 7 verses of the presentation of this little scroll. Uh, starting at verse 1, I saw another strong angel. Well, another one refers to another like angel, a similar angel. This is not Jesus Christ. This is another of the same kind. This is under the uh, class of angels. Another one? Well, where was another? Where was this, the first strong angel? Well, that was in Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. When John had his vision of heaven and he saw the Lamb and he saw the throne up in heaven in verse 2 of chapter 5, John also, he said, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. So that is the first reference to a strong angel. And so John sees another strong angel here. And then in Revelation 18, there's going to be another strong angel. These are mighty angels and there are classes of angels. Apparently, there's really strong angels. We know that from the book of Daniel chapter 10 and Michael the archangel. Apparently, there's wimpy angels. How sad. But anyway, they're still stronger than human beings. But 
So this is a strong, powerful, majestic angel with an authoritative voice and an apparently great responsibility. And so that's what he sees. I saw this strong angel and he's coming down out of heaven. And so now, and then he comes to the earth. We know that. So John's vantage point in terms of his revelation has changed because in chapter four, it said that uh, John was caught up into heaven. Now he's located back down on earth. And so he's seeing revelations that are things transpiring on the earth that are yet future. And so that's what's going to happen here. He's, this is happening on earth. And he's in the presence of this strong angel. And the strong angel is majestic. We know that by the way he is uh, displayed in terms of his description. He's clothed with a cloud. And many times uh, cl- angels are with clouds about 20 times in the New Testament. Many times it refers to judgment. Eschatological judgment. Judgment at the end of the age. And that's what's going on here. This whole chapter, its theme is judgment. And the angels are stewards on behalf of God of issuing God's judgment. So this is no exception. So this angel is powerful. He's strong. He's clothed in a cloud. He's robed with divine majesty coming out of heaven. Heaven is his origin. He's a supernatural being. There's never been anything like this on a human level. He has a rainbow that was encircling his head. There are two words for rainbow in Revelation. This one is iris, which means circle. So this rainbow is a circle. And it's a circle of glory. And it's a circle probably of many colors. And it's around his head as he comes down from heaven. And we know from Genesis 9 and other places that a rainbow often symbolized the judgment of God or really the mercy of God in the midst of God's judgment because that's what God did in the flood. He wiped out everybody, but he, in the midst of judgment, he gave a promise to preserve his faithful people with a rainbow. So a rainbow is a sign of preservation and of mercy in the midst of God's judgment. And that's what's going on here. Even though we have judgment coming, there's a promise of God's mercy to sustain his people. So that's what this angel brings not just judgment but also a promise of mercy and grace a beautiful balance because that's the god we serve a loving god and yet a holy just god and the rainbow was upon his head and his face was like the sun he was just this brilliance in his face he's a holy one he is a sinless angel is what that means and his feet are like literally literally it's his feet and his legs the greek word refers to his feet podos his feet and his legs so he's got these two legs that are like pillars of fire and again fire speaks of purifying judgment to come, which is consistent with the theme. In verse 2, it says he laid his, uh, oh, and in his hand, this angel's hand, probably his left hand, he has this little scroll. Maybe it looks like a papyrus scroll and information is written on it. And this scroll, unlike the scroll of Revelation 4 and 5, this scroll is open. The scroll in Revelation 5 was sealed shut. Its contents could not be seen yet. But this scroll is a different scroll because it's open. Its contents is revealed. In other words, John is going to reveal the content of what's in this scroll. And I believe the content of this scroll, for the most part, is what John's about to say in Revelation 11, possibly through the rest of the book. But it's open. It is to be revealed to the people. Uh, And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, this angel did. That means that he has divine authority over all of planet Earth. And this is a universal message for everyone on Earth. We know that is true because that's what verse 11 says. So he has authority over the entire earth, land and sea, to speak on behalf of God and give this revelation to John the Apostle. Verse 3, this angel cried out with a loud voice. Angels are loud. This thundering authoritative voice that he speaks with the authority of God to John. As when a lion roars. It's a frightening roar. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Who are the seven peals of thunder that uttered their voices? I have no idea. That is just authoritative voices speaking knowable utterances, 
coming from heaven. It's not just noise. It is language that can be discerned. We know that from the following. Verse 4, there's a thundering of voices that come from heaven. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, see, whoever it was, they spoke. They spoke with authority like the sound of thunder. And John heard the sound of thunder that was actually communication he was able to understand. And he heard the voices of the seven thunder and he wanted to write it down and so that he could reveal it. Because that's what he was called to do in Revelation 1.19 when Jesus said, what you see, write down in a book and reveal it. So he's just following directions. But this information is unique because it says when he was ready to write down in this information in the middle of verse 4, I heard a voice from heaven saying, probably the voice of Christ or God himself, saying, John, stop. Put down your pen. Seal up the things which uh, the seven peals of thunder have just spoken. That is privileged information. It is only for your ears, no one else at this time. Seal up the things which have been spoken by the seven thunders of heaven and do not write them down. And John complies and he obeys. And he doesn't write it down. And then verse 5, And then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven. He's going to make a vow. This was a legitimate vow. And he's vowing by none higher than God Himself. So this, this vow will be carried out in hell. It's an angelic vow. And he vows in the name of God. Which he was allowed to do because God called him to do this. And so here's his vow. He raises his right hand. He's got the scroll in his left hand. Lifted up his right hand to heaven and he swore by God who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and all things in it, that there shall be delay no longer. So he is vowing by the universal God who is the God of every creature because the message that is about to be delivered is to be received and heard by every human being on planet earth. Not just believers, not just Christians, not just Jews, but everybody. Everybody is obligated to listen to God the Creator. Did you know that's true today? That is true today, according to Acts chapter 17 and other places, that every person created in God's image is obligated to obey God their Creator. Even if they don't want to, they're still obligated because He created them. Their life is not their own. And that's true here. And what is the message of this angel? This angel promises there's not going to be a delay any longer. Well, what does that refer to? I think it refers back to Revelation 6, uh, 10. When under the fifth seal, John saw martyred souls under the temple of God who cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, before you avenge our blood? And God said, Just a little while longer. Just a little more delay. That was at the very beginning of the tribulation. Now it is at the end of the tribulation. Hence, he says, there is delay no longer. The end has come. The culmination is on the brink. There shall be delay no longer. Verse 7. Well, when is this consummation of all things? It's verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, the seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet ushers in the last judgments of God in the tribulation at the end of the seven-year period. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is complete, literally. When that seventh trumpet blows, that time period, whether it's a year or two years or however long it is, that will be the finality of world history as we know it in a fallen earth before God ushers in the millennial kingdom. The mystery of God shall be finished. What is the mystery of God? The word mystery or mysterion is used maybe a dozen times in the New Testament. It's always used the same way. A mystery in the New Testament means a, a new truth that God is revealing that He did not reveal in the Old Testament. 
That's why the church is called a mystery in the book of Ephesians. The rapture is called a mystery in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, The Antichrist and his dirty deeds is called a mystery in Thessalonians. The hardened nature of Israel during the church age and then their repentance is also called a mystery in the book of Romans. And here is a mystery that was not revealed in all its detail in the Old Testament. The mystery of God that is going to be revealed is all the details of the manifestation of the coming of the kingdom of God on earth to be seen by everybody worldwide. Well, what's mysterious about that? Well, did you know that the mystery of Jesus Christ is happening on the earth right now? It is. But the only ones that really know that are Christians who can spiritually understand that and see that. The world looks and they don't see anything. Jesus ain't anywhere. He's absent. There's no Jesus on earth. There ain't no kingdom here on earth. What they don't understand, it is spiritual. It is unseen. But it's a reality. Jesus is in heaven. He rules on earth through his people on the earth. But in the future, when this mystery is culminated, it's going to be Jesus' kingdom will come down from heaven and literally manifest itself on earth in fulfillment to Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That is the mystery of God that's going to be completed that this angel is talking about. But before that happens, God's judgment has to come. Um, So that is the mystery. It will be finished. It will be complete. God's plan is sure as he preached to the servants and prophets all throughout Old Testament history and even to the New Testament prophets and apostles. So that is the preparation and the presentation of this revelation that John is to be given as he is recommissioned to preach about the final days of the tribulation. So let's go ahead and look at verses 8 through 11. And the assimilation of this little scroll is how John hears about the content of this little scroll And how he responds to it and how he agrees to become a faithful steward of this revelation. Starting at verse 8. This is the assimilation of the little scroll. Assimilation means to appropriate. uh, To take it and make it a part of your own. To interact with it in an inextricable manner. And that's what he does. Verse 8. And the voice which I had heard from heaven, probably God's voice or Christ, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the scroll which is in the open hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And John... He has a choice here to make and he is not uh, forced to obey, but he is compelled to obey out of obedience and love for his Savior. And so he does. Verse 9 says, He went to the angel, just as God asked him to do, telling the angel to give him the little book or the little scroll. And he said to him, The angel says to John, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So this is twofold. The scroll as he eats it, First sensation is it's going to be sweet. By the way, the word for sweet in verse 9 and verse 10 is glucose. Glucose, where we get the word sugar. It's going to be sweet like sugar, sweet like honey in his mouth. This is similar to the Old Testament. Ezekiel, when he ate the scroll, he ate the words of God. Even though they were words of judgment and doom, it was sweet to the mouth because he had direct revelation from God. He knew the truth. He had the truth. He possessed the truth. That's also true of Christians. We possess the truth. That is a sweet thing. God is still speaking. He's alive. He's not silent, right? So it's a sweet thing to the mouth. But then as he chews it and digests it and swallows it, it gives him nausea and makes his stomach bitter. What is that? That refers to the content of what it is that he has to preach. He counts it a privilege to be a prophet of God, but his message is one of doom and gloom. And he knows more than likely that that many people are going to reject his message. Not many are going to repent even though God is calling these people and wooing these people to repent. So it's bittersweet. And you know what? That is a that is a paradigm of the Christian life, isn't it? The Christian life is bitter and sweet. 
We always have reason to rejoice. I think of Psalm chapter 40 where it says, uh, anyone who knows God has reason to rejoice at all times, but it's rejoice not in my circumstances, not in my blessings, not in my material possessions, uh, not that things are going well. Rejoice in the Lord. That's the joy. But we live in the midst of bitterness all the time, don't we? Hardships, sorrows, trials, failures, temptations, our own sin, the reality of the devil, uh, people's trials. The Christian life is a bittersweet thing. God is a realist. And He recognizes that. He's trying to encourage John. It's a bittersweet thing. The calling of a Christian is a bitter and sweet thing. We have, it's sweet because we have the good news. We have the answer. We have the solution, don't we? To the disease of humanity. I remember when I first got saved, that's what I thought. Here's the answer, what I've been looking for for 19 years. Oh, it's so simple. All I've got to do is share with everybody and they'll believe it. My whole family will be saved. How glorious. That's what I thought in my naivete. Then I went and shared it, this great and glorious truth, and everybody kept rejecting it. How bitter, how sad, how distasteful, how it made me mourn and cry. The life of a Christian is bittersweet. The life of a prophet is bitter and sweet all the more, especially John's message at the end of the age. Life is not getting better, by the way. So much of people in the world believe that the world is getting better. We're heading towards a utopia on earth. No, not really. The earth is under the curse of God and is winding down and getting worse as time goes on. That's a realistic perspective of the world in which we live. God doesn't want us to be naive or idealistic, but to be realistic. So this is what John confronts. It's a bittersweet reality. Man, oh, thank you, God, for giving me this message and telling me how the world ends and this precious truth from you. How sweet. Oh, but the message, it is bitter. It's bitter. Humanity is hardened. Humanity is sinful. It's bitter to my stomach. God, give me the grace to be a faithful preacher of this message. Verse 11. And he wraps it up. And they said to me, they, whoever they are, whether the angels and the voices of heaven, assure John, commission John, you must prophesy again. You must finish the mission. Finish strong. There's a good theme of the Christian life, isn't it? Finish strong. Perseverance of the saints. You must prophesy again. I know it's been heavy, John. It's been hard. And these nine chapters have been brutal, haven't they? In many respects. There's good news, but there's also a lot of bad news. A lot of doom and gloom. But you've got to continue. You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. It's going to be universal. You're going to be talking to the whole stage of planet Earth at that time. Every category of people from just the lowly masses to the kings who are in authority and in charge of planet Earth itself at that time. This message is universally binding. And his heart's desire is that they would hear it, heed, and repent. And we're going to see what the message is in 11 through 18, where a lot of it, I said, is gloom and doom. But it doesn't end with gloom and doom. Actually, it ends with good news because God is a good God. And he accomplishes his purpose. And we're going to see that chapters 19 through 22 is actually nothing but good news for the most part. And it'll be a great time of celebration and rejoicing. And that is yet coming. And with that, let's go ahead, bow with me to the Father to thank him for his word. Father, we do thank you for uh, the truth of Scripture. We thank you that it is historical. It's accurate. It actually happened. Thank you, Lord, that it also covers all of history and tells us about the future. And I thank you that you are a light and you shine it in the darkness so that we don't have to guess how the world is going to end. All things work together for good and according to your purpose, God. 
you will be glorified, the saints will be blessed, and in that we rejoice. In the meantime, Lord, help us to be faithful witnesses, ambassadors for you, as you called John the Apostle to do. To be faithful with your message wherever we go, to have courage and boldness to speak up, and also to have courage and boldness and faith to press on even when our message is rejected, rejected by family, people we love, rejected by friends, rejected by neighbors, coworkers, rejected by those maybe with a hardened heart, but some will receive and respond. And therein lies our joy, God, and also the fact that we're being faithful to you. Therein lies our commitment to obedience. And we just thank you. We commit this time to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.